0: stay at home and protect lives. That's the clear warning from the health secretary, Matt Hancock, who says it's not a request, but an instruction. Hi folks,
1: quick update from me on the campaign against coronavirus. I want every American to be prepared for the hard days that lie ahead.
2: finding faster
1: ways
0: to test people who may have the virus. And
2: as nobody knows when theatres will be able to fill their seats again, it's an industry in crisis, the Book of Mormon set that's still on stage, an eerie reminder of the suddenness of the pandemic.
0: Hello and welcome to Corona Chronicles SNS Online spin-off show that continues to touch base with a wide variety of people from all walks of life to talk about how the current situation is impacting the both professionally and personally, as well as offering a cupful of cheer, some top tips, up-to-date stats, and most importantly to touch virtual base with a cheery hello. And without the need for hand sanitizer, I'm Nick Randall. <coughs>
2: dog and duck and Darren was going on about how much he hates the EU and Ewan asked him why. Well Darren mentioned sovereignty but when Ewan asked which European laws Darren was against he couldn't think of any. The conversation moved on to holidays and Darren mentioned that he'd never been abroad and how he didn't want to on account of there being too many foreigners. We finally found a new carer Heidi from Lichtenberg. This idea came with glowing references from Mountview. Basically they weren't able to prove her job couldn't be done by a Brit. Which is ridiculous because I've heard they're very short-staffed at Mountview. I don't know why we couldn't find a nice English girl like that, Moira. Ralph said she was actually Scottish which makes her a foreigner now. Thanks to me, he says.
0: Tales from the Golden Age are a brand new series of monologues produced during lockdown and available free on YouTube. The first two episodes explore the changes in society since Brexit and Covid with some wry observations as well as a damning indictment of a future society based on intolerance and fear, a society which arguably we are heading towards as politics and pandemic combine to divide us. Well, writer and director of Tales from the Golden Age, also creator of the Golden Age Theatre Company, Ian Dixon Potter, joins me on the line now. Ian, welcome to the programme. What were your initial hopes for this series and how has lockdown ultimately influenced the final result?
1: Well, I don't think the monologues would have happened at all without lockdown. I got the idea from the BBC. It was about three months ago, at least, there was an announcement on Radio 4 that the BBC were going to remake Alan Bennett's Talking Heads. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's good. I remember enjoying the original ones. And I thought to myself, oh, maybe I can do that. Mm. Maybe I can write some monologues. Not something I've ever done before. But like a lot of people involved in theatre, I was twiddling my thumbs. uh, The lockdown put a stop to um, a play that uh, was supposed to be produced this year. Another one uh, was likely cancelled as well because of it. Uh, Everything's put on hold. But this was something I could do. It immediately struck me that uh, I could film them. Even the rehearsals could take place uh, over Zoom, so we didn't need to get together until the actual final filming. There would just be myself, the actor, and the videographer, so we could probably practice social distancing as well. So the whole thing came about as something that could be done during lockdown, in the same way that the BBC did the same with uh, Alan Bennett's analogues. I had, uh, had no intention that they should in any way resemble Alan Bennett's. And my, ve- my memory of the original ones was a little vague. In fact, I don't think I'd even seen them all at that point. Oh. And then uh, it was well into writing my own, uh, probably after filming the first one, that I actually got to see Alan Bennett's. Um, I um, ordered the DVD, so I watched the originals, and around about the same time as they were first broadcast, about three or four weeks ago now. But by that time, I'd already written... Uh, five or six of my own monologues. Right. So, in, in content and style, they weren't really influenced by him at all. Sure. But it's it's interesting, of course, the very first review that came in, I compared them. Ewan said,
2: he wondered if sovereignty was the real reason Darren voted leave. So, whichever way you look at it. We're miles apart when it comes to Brexit. And to be frank, I'd rather hang around with people who don't look down on me on account of my my opinions. That's what it amounts to.
0: Tell us about Trivial Dispute, which is the first of the yes. two plays for the available so far. I mean, what I have here is a working class guy made good in business, but little education, living in a salubrious part of town, a taste for the finer things now, like classic cars, a true blue Tory and Brexiteer, and he has some choice words about immigrants too.
1: Yes. Yes, well, that one came about, it was a confluence of three different things came together for that. I've always been amused by the idea of uh, something which starts out as a trivial disagreement and then escalates and becomes very serious. It's, it's just something that amuses me and tickles my fancy. Mm. And it happens. It happens so often in real life. So that was the first ingredient. That's been on my mind for a long time as a possible basis for a play. Uh, The second aspect was the the division in society created by the Brexit vote. The very fact that we had a referendum, irrespective of of the result, has obviously divided society, uh, riven it in two. Family members are not talking to each other, old friends no longer see each other. That's the worst thing about Brexit. If you put aside the pros and cons of whether we should or shouldn't be leaving the European Union, the damage it's done to British society is uh, irrevocable, And, and it will probably last a generation or more. Yeah. It, there's deep resentment on both sides unfortunately, you know, even the, the, the winners are d- are deeply resent the fact that they think the, the losers the Ramonas, as they call them look, look down on them, and to a certain extent that's true, <laughs> uh, and of course the Ramonas deeply resent the fact that this country is being taken in a direction uh, which they're not happy with, which it's turning into the sort of country they no longer feel patriotic for, they no longer want to live here in, in some cases
0: I mean I get the distinct impression you're letting off some steam here ian possibly uh, speaking for the whole country
1: <laughs> no well no i mean I, I, there are very few people on either side of the debate who, who would disagree with the fact that society is divided in two yeah uh, and then, then there's a third element the third element was a real uh, set of circumstances in the classic car world which i know something about where a disagreement between two middle-aged classic car enthusiasts which started out as a trivial matter and escalated, didn't escalate quite as far as it does in the monologue, but right. that real event, that real series of events, was the third element which came together. So you had the three things, the notion of the trivial dispute escalating, this particular disagreement, which tied up with social media and the use of Facebook and creation of fake profiles, uh, and then the whole background of Brexit and the division of society and of course not most people out there are not terribly interested in the classic car world but you don't need to be to to enjoy this monologue Um, but you do i suppose need to have a an eye for what's happened to British society as a sure. of the So
0: just to explain to people who haven't watched it, there is a classic car group that I think they create a Facebook group. And this chap who um, is all very happy-go-lucky, he's made his millions and all the rest of it. He's part of that now. He's part of that world. Um, but he seems yes. to clash with this chap called Ewan, who um, is a sort of cosmopolitan and liberal-minded retired academic. Um in, yeah. in some ways, I, I do have to ask you this, uh, Ian, is you and you? Because there are a number of similarities. And bear in mind, Uh-oh. I've known you for a good 20 plus years. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> well, in, in some respects, of course, uh, yes, in some respects, my wife and I moved to an area where... Uh, having lived for several decades in central London and, and enjoyed the cosmopolitan character of central London, we now found ourselves living in an area where we've, uh, we're surrounded by uh, predominantly English people. Sure. And I recall back in, in the refer- when the referendum happened, uh, there were only ever leave posters in people's windows. Mm-hmm. And my wife is Japanese, and we joked that she was the only Japanese in the village. <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> and <good>. so, <laughs> in some ways, we. <laughs> although we, ha- I have actually made a number of very firm friendships uh, in in the area. Um, nevertheless there is that that uh, you know we, we are slightly at odds with the character of the way we live but we do like it here from other respects it's, the countryside is beautiful uh it's great fun particularly if you um if you like motoring as i do because you can jump in a car and drive out into the countryside you can't no. do that in central London no. so um and my, and my wife who uh, enjoys the garden which we couldn't enjoy so much in central London yeah, exactly. so there are, there, there are positive things about living here and so the, the character you and is based slightly on some of those aspects, but not not entirely. I mean, you know, the character Euron and, and his main antagonist, the character Trevor, are really loosely based on real people. Okay, yeah. okay.
0: And the logistics of filming it, I mean, uh, how do you sort of gather the talents together, the locations, uh, you know, the communication?
1: Well, uh, in terms of uh, the actors, uh, so, so far I've been working with actors that have previously appeared in my plays, Right. And of which there are now quite a long list. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's, there's someone to, to fit almost any part I can come up with. But first of all, for Trevor, there was a clear, uh, obvious candidate for that role. And also for the second um, monologue, uh, the character Dorothy, there was a clear candidate for that role as well. So there was no problem there. Rehearsal had to be through Zoom, and so they had to have those facilities that most people seem to have now. And... Um, the third element was the videographer, Howard, who is a friend of a friend, I, it was very difficult to do without him. In fact, before I made contact with Howard, I was thinking, well, I'm going to have to get hold of the equipment myself and train myself on how to use it. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to, because he has, you know, we use two cameras, he has very professional equipment, his approach is, is, is very skilled and professional, and particularly at the editing stage, I've been quite amazed by what he can achieve. Mm. For example, in in the second monologue, one of the scenes was in a room in a conservatory and the, the rain was lashing down on the glass roof and it was, made a complete mess of the sound but he was able to clear all that up post-production.
0: I actually love the the atmosphere with the rain falling in those scenes. I thought it, I thought it added to the yes. piece anyway.
1: Yes, you can see it as well through, through yes. the windows you behind the character. You yes. certainly
0: can. Um, I yes. mean, um, in terms of the actors, did they have to learn the whole thing or were there cue cards available for some scenes or did you just stop and mm. start a lot?
1: No, we, d- we certainly didn't use cue cards. But the first monologue, um, where the, the character Trevor, played by Neil Somerville, that was all rushed. We, we, I had a location in mind, which was perfect for the monologue. I won't say too much about it because it would spoil the, the monologue for anyone who's going to watch yeah. it, because the, the location is critical. Mm-hmm. And when, at the end of the monologue, where they realize where, where the location is, they'll understand that. Mm. And I had a uh, there aren't many places that would suit that, and I had somewhere in mind and then all of a sudden that place uh, was going to become not available and we had we had to really rush it we had to I think I I had to do it by the 4th of August because on the 5th it wasn't going to be available for a couple of months and so Neil was put in a position where he had to learn the lines as quickly as possible within a few days and because we were filming uh, we we could split it up and so he he would um, he, he learned it quite well, but then he he would stop and consult a page of the text. It, it, it broke down into about 16 pages. Mm. So 16 different sections were, were stitched together. You wouldn't think so, would you, looking at it?
0: No.
1: But no, he had only a few days. Whereas with the second monologue, Kate had uh, about a month to learn her lines, so she was pretty well off book but we film with two cameras simultaneously in almost the same position one in wide and one in close-up so if if an actor does fluff a line then we can just cut from the close-up to the wide back again
0: there's some very nice reviews coming in it must be said um, Theatre Monkey they all gave four stars increasingly edgy as this tale unfolds he holds out for attention the entire 40 minutes the writing is equally uh, consistent and I'll agree with that um, some excellent observations are made about social media etiquette this was a, a good point and how words on a screen may not be taken with the sort of tongue-in-cheek manner that would be more discernible in spoken conversation a startling reminder too that one should never take oneself too seriously <laughs> even in the global pandemic that was london theater and finally the review a hub reviews hub the monologue neatly captures the voice of a generation of people who feel disenfranchised from the global pace and who are powerfully entrenched in their own worlds we may not like what they have to say but as dixon potter creates a snowball effect within the drama it is clear how easy the individual and the state can lose control i think that sort of nails it really are you happy with those? Yes, <laughs> they're,
1: they're very happy. Um, yes, they were, they were thoughtful, well-written reviews, and uh, and the reviews are remarkably consistent. That's unusual in a way. Mm. Three reviews for Trivial Dispute, all of them four star. Now, that is unusual. In the past, a play has often had a whole range of stars, from one to five for the very same performance. Mm. When you get that kind of range, it probably tells you more about the reviewer than the player. <laughs> yeah, but but, I was
0: uh, going <laughs> to say...
2: Marks and Spencers when his arms swapped in, swooped in and arrested that poor Italian girl. They had a pin to the floor. They dragged her out bleeding. I heard she had learning difficulties, poor thing. He said that was an exceptional case. I said it's virtually a daily occurrence round here. He said over 70% of the population of Stoke-on-Trent voted leave. I told him I was one of them. But I didn't expect all this. All these forms? It was supposed to be getting rid of red tape.
0: Let's <clears throat> talk about the new normal. I mean, this, I, I've got to say, this seems to be like a continuation of Russell T. Davis's brilliant and rather prophetic years and years, a peek into a <clears throat> near future that seems terrifyingly
1: feasible. Mm. Well, I did see Russell's um, uh, years and years, and it was very good indeed. Yes. But this. This monologue is actually based on a play which was written well before then. Okay. In fact, funny enough, when the play itself was performed, somebody compared it to a, an episode of Black Mirror. Oh, right. So uh, these televisual uh, comparisons uh, seem to be great. The events of the play are seen from the point of view of one character. Hmm. So you don't see the whole play, but uh, Dorothy is an elderly lady who suffered a stroke some years before. And uh, she's had a succession of carers looking after her, full-time carers living in their house. But it's increasingly difficult to find carers in the post-Brexit world. Mm. Because, of, as you know, of course, the great majority of people in the care profession are uh, often from places like uh, Italy and uh, Hungary and Romania and Poland. Mm. And they've all gone home.
0: Yes, quite. So <laughs>
1: it's, it's, it's really difficult for them. And so they end up having to employ a foreigner illegally because a foreigner isn't allowed in this future society to, to, to work in this country without a permit. And to get a permit, you have to go through all lots of hoops. You have to make, absolutely prove that the job can't be done by uh, a British person. There isn't mm. a British person for the job, and it's really difficult to prove that. So in this, in this future society, just four years in the future, the amount of red tape that people have to go through, all the hoops they have to go through just to um, employ someone, is is a, is a fundamental part of the post-Brexit Britain. Mm. So I, it's obviously I'm imagining uh, a worst-case scenario in many yeah. ways. Uh, I'm imagining that our industry has collapsed because of the tariffs, because of the fact that we, don't, we haven't got a trade deal, uh, that there uh, was a great shortage of labour, um, and that the balance of the payments has dramatically reduced and so on. <laughs> The Foreign Office has confirmed that the Spanish Prime Minister is about to tear up the Anglo-Spanish Gibraltar agreement and that, unfortunately, this will pave the way for the Scottish Republic to join the European Union. The government had hoped that in return for Britain giving up its claim to Gibraltar, Spain would veto Scottish accession to the EU. Speaking in Madrid, the Foreign Secretary, Sir Nigel Farage, said that he should have known better than to
2: trust a greasy dago. The Spanish volt fast is seen as another example of Britain's
0: increasing isolation. Also, what was interesting in this particular play was the way it was broken up with radio reports um, uh, being read from, I don't know, Radio 4 of the World Service, which were undercutting the action of this particular woman. And it was explaining more yes. about what society had changed, uh, how had changed uh, Jacob Rees Morgan is for Prime Minister. Uh, we have a 200 mile mm-hmm. wall being put up, a uh, border between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic. Sir so
1: Nigel Farage
0: yeah. is Foreign Secretary.
1: <laughs> well, oh I did my say God. It was a worst case scenario. Well, absolutely. And of course, <laughs> yeah.
0: Rees. Reading, reading these bulletins beautifully is the BBC's finest Robin Lustig. How did you manage to find yes. him?
1: Well, um, Robin, he, he was the friend of uh, an actor who appeared in Little England. Ah, right. So uh, this actor, Albert Clark, who sadly is no longer with us, Oh. God. Um, he, he passed away last summer. Oh, right. In fact, I only discovered that recently. It was very sad because oh. uh, I didn't know at the time. Mm-hmm. I sent out messages to Albert asking him if he'd be interested in appearing in a play. And, mm-hmm. of course, I didn't hear anything of that no. strange. No. Albert's such a gentleman. He wouldn't uh, not respond. And it turned out that he'd uh, he passed away. So mm-hmm. it was all very sad. Mm-hmm. But, yes, it was Albert who put me in touch with Robin. And I've kept in touch with Robin ever since. Went to, I went to Robin's house in the near Alexander Palace with, with uh, Janet smith who is our sound recordist and we recorded the bulletins uh, for the play little england and and use them again in the monologue so it sets the scene it sets the scene uh, you learn about what's going on in the country mm. you learn about the uh, the fact that scotland is no longer part of the united kingdom and is now part, uh, moving towards becoming a separate country within the european union itself and that there's conflict at the border, there's armed skirmishes at Barrick-on-Tweed, as there is at the heavily fortified Irish border, because, of course, whilst Northern Ireland is is still part of the United Kingdom in this scenario, the, the, there's, there's a new border wall, and uh, there's trouble, there's a the resum- resumption of the, of the troubles. And all this could, could well happen, all this yeah. was a, a risk that people were aware of, of course, at the time we had the referendum, but Obviously, a lot of people thought that that was a risk worth taking.
0: Yeah, just everything that, that, that's happened with uh, America and Trump and Brexit and now the pandemic. I think it's, it's a very believable future that you paint. I mean, fingers crossed things might evolve a little better than that, but um, it, it's, it's a believable scenario.
1: It is uh, sadly yes. if the Scottish had a referendum now, I'm pretty sure they would vote to leave the European leave the United Kingdom. yes, and yeah. they would then want to join the EU. that would happen if if they get the opportunity. Mm. and if they if the British government doesn't give them the opportunity, they will fight for it. They might even have a, an illegal referendum such as they had in Barcelona and that would lead to a lot of trouble.
0: Let's talk about the future plays in the same series. Uh, what, what have we got to look forward to without too
1: many spoilers? Uh, yes, well, the third monologue, which will be filmed in just under two weeks' time, is called Marlowe's Ghost. Mm. Marlowe. Uh, <laughs> yes, Christopher Marlowe, the oh, playwright. Oh, right, right. Yes, uh, it's a slight pun on, of course, <laughs> Marlowe's <laughs> Ghost. But, yeah. um, uh, it's um, <clears throat> written... The monologue is presented from the point of view of an elderly, now-retired William Shakespeare, who's given up um, writing plays and gone to live back in Stratford-upon-Avon. He, he retired, actually, in reality, at the age of 47, surprisingly, at the height of his powers, just wow. after writing um, The Tempest. Mm. And a lot of people wonder why uh, Shakespeare's plays are... Um, <clears throat> there's a veil drawn over their authorship, as you know, that a lot yes. of people think, oh, maybe Edward de Vere wrote them, maybe Francis Bacon or someone else, um, because the folio doesn't have his name on it. Mm. Or when it does appear, it's in inverted commas, all very mysterious. Well, this monologue seeks to explain both things, why he retired at the age of 47, at the height of his powers, and why he drew a veil over his authorship of the plays. And the reasons for that all lies many years before, about 23 years before the the, the monologue itself is delivered, um, concerning Shakespeare's friendship with fellow playwright Christopher Marlowe and the events that led to Marlowe's assassination.
0: I, mm-hmm. I think there's a theme in your plays. You're very interested in the past and and, and sometimes sort of righting writing wrongs of, of, of history being recorded badly. I remember Richard III, which was good King Richard. And, and instead of the, yes. the Shakespeare angle of this uh, um, guy with a hump who's doing uh, soliloquies to, to camera and winking and, and killing people off left, right mm-hmm. and centre, we are given probably a far more realistic portrayal of the man himself.
1: Yeah, yeah, that, that was, um, again, based on a great deal of research uh, that I tried to present uh, the, what I thought was the real Richard III rather than the Shakespearean villain. Mm. Uh, I'm not at the moment planning a monologue based on that one. <laughs> um, but it was great as a play when I saw it. Yes, saw it I, a couple of times. Enjoyed, yeah. Yes, thank you, yes. And then the one after Marlowe's Ghost is called The Triumph of Evil. And, um, that's a very dark monologue. It's um, It looks at the Holocaust from the point of view of Count Bernadotte, a Swedish aristocrat who had to deal with the devil when he entered into negotiation with the leader of the SS, Heinrich Himmler, in an attempt to liberate thousands of prisoners from the concentration camps. Uh, so this is a true story. Mm. And Count Bernadotte is the character who, who tells the story. Um, and it's interspersed with his own observations on what happened and why the German people did what they did. Mm. Why the Nazi hierarchy did what they did. What what lay behind it? What lay behind the motivation for the Final Solution? So, so it's very dark. It's quite philosophical. Um, there's uh, Iago, as it's called, which, as as the name suggests, is uh, a version of Shakespeare's Othello, mm. but seen from the point of view of the villain of the piece, Iago. It uses um, not exactly modern language, but it doesn't use Shakespeare's original language, a sort of stylized language. Um, so it's the story of Othello, from Iago's point of view, his uh, attempt to, again, revenge after being passed over for, for promotion. And I've tied it into the Black Lives Matter campaign. It's quite controversial in some ways. Um, right. Most of us accept that for too long, able-bodied white men have had a, an unfair advantage, but uh, not everyone agrees with positive discrimination. And, and in this uh, uh, retelling of Othello, Iago most certainly doesn't, because he feels mm. that he's been passed over for promotion for, in favor of Cassius, who, who in this uh, version is also a man, a man from BAME. So it's, it's a modern day presentation of the story of Othello from the point of view of Iago, And perfectly timed as well. <laughs> yeah, mm. That's right. Then there's The Strange Romance, which is all about a young man who falls in love with someone who is uh, of indeterminate gender, which ah. is based on a previous play. And then there's another one called uh, Transhuman, which is uh, science fiction. It's um, explores transhumanism, the idea that we can transcend the boundaries of human experience, that we can plug ourselves into the World Wide Web, surf the Internet with our minds alone, and possibly even transcend uh, our, our bodily mortality, as some scientists sincerely believe that we will be able to in a decade or two. So it explores that possibility. The monologue is being delivered by somebody who has been through that experience, who has become transhuman.
0: Uh, oh, you mean in the, in the story?
1: In the story. Yeah, sorry.
0: (laughs) Yes. I was going to say, really? (laughs) Wow, (laughs) that's cool.
1: (laughs) Well, it's not that, you know, the the, the leading proponent of this sort of transhumanism is a scientist, a well-respected scientist called Ray Kurzweil. And he believes this will happen within his lifetime. And he's well into his 70s now, so I think he might be being a little optimistic there. But this monologue looks at what it will be like to become transhuman and the implications of that. You know, would you yearn for interaction with the physical world? I and mean, sort of all sorts of moral, and ethical issues to be explored. But also, how, how, also, you
0: know, you've got to your mind has to be sort of not even reproduced. It's got to presumably be the same mind that's inside the net, or you just are you just duplicating it?
1: Well, that's a very good question. And that, uh, th- th- this monologue addresses precisely that ah, right and at first glance. at first glance, you think, "Oh no, no, this, this is just a copy of you. It's not really you. Mm. It- it's just a cop- there, w- there was an episode of Black Mirror once where uh, a young man dies in a road accident, and his wife starts interacting with a digitized copy on- online, which was formulated from his Facebook experiences, but that was just a copy. that wasn't him but transhumanism is not that transhumanism is something completely different it is you it is a continuation of the self and the way that's achieved or would be achieved is by a gradual process of cybernetic augmentation you, wow. will, you will make the, the move gradually. It isn't a sudden thing. And this way you get used to surfing the internet and popping back into your corporeal form and you can move backwards and forwards. And eventually when the time comes, you can spend all your time in the digitized form. But wow. it's a gradual process and that's the key to maintaining the self or the essence, the soul or spirit, if you like. Yes, It's existing ultimately in a purely digital form
0: fascinating stuff
1: uh, it's going to be quite a challenge it you know, sounds right?
0: fascinating they they all i think every single one of your yes. plays you've really gone in um feet first and deep dived into issues and as i said writing uh history and uh, exploring
1: very complex themes well it's something you can do with a monologue you know it's sometimes with, in an ordinary play with realistic n- n- conversation people don't often delve into these philosophical areas so much mm. but if somebody is 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 sit sat there opening up their mind uh, reflecting quietly on the things that have been happening in their life you have an opportunity to do that in a monologue in a way you can't actually do it in a stage play but of course the difficulty is to make it entertaining and not seem like a lecture mm. and that's the trick
0: Well, based on the first two I've seen so far, I I think it's going to be a fantastic series. I also must add the music is wonderful and the original score, I think, and the titles are are, are sumptuous. I mean, it,
1: it really sets the scene for quality drama yes well that's um howard himself is responsible for the titles he's done a really good job with those and neil thompson uh, for the music original music i've worked with neil before we, we've uh, together we've been working on a musical and this is the play that that the lockdown put a stop to really yeah, right. but that will appear that will appear next year so i wrote the lyrics neil wrote the music and we've we've uh, what i think will be you know a lot of very catchy songs uh, and so I asked Neil to to produce the music for these monologues, and it, it's not all the same. For example, in Malo's ghost, he's produced a sort of Baroque version of the scene ah, right, sort of so for mandolin and lute. As a sort of full start, where do we where do we find these? Uh, yes, well, uh, there are different ways of finding If you go to YouTube and type in Golden Age Theatre Company, that will take you to the monologues. Mm-hmm. Or you could go to the, the, the Theatre Company website, which is www.goldenagetheatre.com. Of course, it's all free, then I'm not... Uh, uh, we don't have a sufficiently well-oiled YouTube channel to actually start <laughs> profiting from this at the moment. In, in many ways, the monologues are a testbed for real live theatre performances. Mm. On the strength of the first two, the artistic director of The White Bear, Michael Kinsbury, would like to see them performed in the theatre, The White Bear in Kennington. Um, so uh, assuming that theaters are able to open smoothly as we hope in the next uh, over the next few weeks, we're hoping to actually stage them on, the, on the live sometime in late September or October. Uh, so that the, the film monologues are a testbed for, mm. for the theater monologues. It may be that once filmed and, and watched. We think that no, no, that just doesn't work. Or maybe it's too long, or it's too boring, or it's too preachy. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, 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 some of them we, won't work. It, it is experimental. Um, but but some, I think the first two will. The, mm-hmm. the, the first two that we've actually got in the can will. They'll have to be tweaked uh, for, for live performances. But um, mm-hmm. as for whether they, they all will, and at the moment there are, I think, seven seven written monologues and okay. a couple more in gestation. Three currently in rehearsal. Okay. Uh, a couple more which I haven't even asked, I haven't reached out to actors yet.
0: It sounds like you have your hands pretty full. Uh, Ian Dixon-Potter thank you so much for uh, chatting to us today. I'm so looking forward to the monologues um, and the very best of luck with it. Also, stay safe. Yeah, okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Ian Dixon-Potter there. Well, that's it for this edition. If you want to email us about anything at all, uh, the address is Show at gmail.com Well, we're taking a short summer break, but Corona Chronicles will be back very soon. So until then, this is Nick Randall saying take care and look after yourselves. Goodbye.